has, has already been mentioned. It is a blessed occasion that's brought us together today. It's not of our choosing, but it's the God of heaven who determined the first day of the week and set the bounds of the loveliness of our coming together in service to Him. It's our earnest prayer that our prayers are singing. All the aspects of our worship will please our Heavenly Father, for He is the audience and not us. We certainly are thankful for the presence of every person today, and we hope that each of us will be such that our hearts will be drawn closer to God by virtue of having been here today. Things Not Done in Heaven. That's the title that I have chosen for the lesson this morning. And in many ways, this lesson will have as its goal the motivation of each of us in ways described on this slide. Our sojourn here upon this planet, in this physical life, is in fact beset by so many things, and without doubt there are matters touching it that can bring elements in pleasure and excitement. But it's also true that we look for a different place than this one. And one of the ways the Bible puts that before us is to contemplate some things which you and I do on a regular basis on earth that will never, ever be done in heaven. In other words, there are certain things, certain activities, which you and I do regularly, but they'll not, they'll not be done there. This lesson was prompted by a, an article that Alan Webster wrote. You may be familiar, he's one of the organizers of the PTP that which takes place in August each year up in, up in Sevierville. But he wrote an article, and at least some of this is patterned after thoughts that he at least mentioned in, in that article. But as you and I extend it, we're going to use quite a few verses of the Word of God. As we do that, why don't we give some thought starting it like this. Did you turn on a light this morning? My suspicion is every one of us did. Probably one of the first things we did when we arose this morning, at least if we got up anyways near early on with the days being as short as they are, we would have found it necessary to flip on a light switch. Have you ever given thought that there will be no such thing as that done in heaven? Let's build some of those thoughts together like this. Artificial light is, of course, you and I know it well, we depend on it. We use it and we do so to light our ways in life so that we'll not see obstacles, so that we'll not injure ourselves in any way regarding it. As you can see on that slide, often whether inside or outside, we in fact have access to artificial lighting. But let's turn to 1 John chapter 1 and let's notice not only a verse that's found there, it's verse number 5 of that chapter. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5, and the text there reads like this, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness attached to the God of heaven, but in fact we can go one step beyond that. In Revelation 21, the following description is presented. Remember, as John saw the beautiful heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and that, of course, represents the magnitude and the enormity of heaven. John, what do you see? You write it in a book, and this is what he saw. Could I invite you to notice verse number 23? And the city, this is heaven, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. 
Now, at that point, our attention is already riveted on the glory and the beauty of a place in which there is no artificial lighting. God is light. The Lamb lights this one. Let's read the next two verses. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Notice, they're walking in light, but it isn't artificial. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Nighttime is by and large a time that we appreciate and associate with darkness. It's often a time in which we understand the need for some artificial lighting, and yet the Word of God testifies there is no night there. You and I are looking forward to being in a place where there is no darkness. No light whatsoever. There'll be no need to flip on a light switch. There'll be no need for a flashlight. There'll be no need for a lantern. All the light that'll ever be needed is provided by the Son of God. He, as the Lamb, it says, lightens it. Can you imagine the glory, the effulgence that must come from His being? I recall on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember that when He appeared there with Moses and Elijah? It was said that His glistering appearance was brighter than the sun. Isn't that interesting? No night in heaven. And there's no need to turn on a light. One last thing on that slide then might be this. Doesn't that testify of another association the Bible frequently makes? Namely, that sin is associated with darkness. For those who walk in the light are those who walk by the nature of the Word of God. 1 John 1 verse 7. But it's those who walk in darkness, those who choose the path of disobedience, those who choose to abandon God and His Word. They're the ones that are going to be, of course, in darkness. No wonder at that point Matthew 25 30 says that there, speaking of the one talent man, he was cast into a place, and you know it well, outer darkness. Do you see the contrast? Heaven's a place of complete light. No darkness there, but yet that unfaithful man was cast into a place of outer darkness, meaning utter darkness. Can you imagine being in a place where it is darker than any darkness you and I typically experience, and it's that way permanently? There's never any light, and yet that's what hell's going to be like. It is a very, very tragic description, and it's also exceedingly bothersome to contemplate it. Let's close that slide then like this. If you and I choose then to walk in darkness, we are forfeiting our hope of heaven. If we won't repent, if we won't come back to the light, and because God is light, He's the one to whom we have to go. Didn't Peter say it well? Lord, Thou hast the words of everlasting life. To whom shall we go? John 6, verses 66 to 68. The first thing then that will not be done in heaven is to turn on a light. What else will not be done there? It is fascinating sometimes to reflect on how much investment you and I have to make in an effort to avoid crime. Do you have locks on your doors? Do you have a security camera? Do you have other means whereby you specifically try to deter crime? We all do. We know it well. That's something that will never be done in heaven. 
There's no locks on any of the doors. Didn't Jesus say in John 14 that there are many mansions there and you and I look forward to having rooms. None of the rooms have locks on them. There's no need for it. There's no thieves there. There's nobody that's going to deter or mar or try to take what belongs to you or I for themselves. I simply entitled it to avoid crime and protect items. There'll be no need for it there. The Word of God puts it in language like this. The protection sometimes that you and I invest in, I mentioned the locks and other things we know well, but isn't it true there are companies whose revenue extends into the millions like ADT? And even Twin Lakes has the capability of this in which you pay someone to watch over the confines of your house. There, in fact, is an ongoing surveillance of your place to make sure nobody breaks in and to make sure that there's no fire damage and no carbon monoxide matters. There will be none of that in heaven. This is a place. As you can see on the slide, Revelation 21 verse 27 reads it like this. And there shall in no wise, do you note the emphasis? In no wise, not even at the most minuscule level, there shall in no wise enter into it, that it refers to heaven, anything that defileth. Whatever imaginable for defilement, it will not be there. And the verse goes on to say this, Neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Already you and I should have a heightened desire to ponder going to this place. May I say at this same point, one could thus have added this, there will be no jail cells, no prisons, no incarceration. There will be nothing like that in this golden place. You know, the human family on several occasions has desired to think about a utopian existence. And there is really quite a few in the religious world who describe the earth is going to be like that one day. You've heard it well in this premillennial business. They claim Jesus is going to come back. He's going to defeat at the Battle of Armageddon. And for a thousand years, so they say, there's going to be this paradise on earth where there's no crime, None of these things that are terrible. Now, all of that is just blatantly unbiblical. The Bible doesn't teach any of it, but we who are faithful Christians do long for a place. It's just not on earth where it's going to be a paradise, all right. It's a place where there's nothing that defiles, nothing whatsoever. Let's close that slide then by noting one last thing. When you and I find or we make arrangements for insurance. Now again, I think in wisdom most of us do this. We have insurance on our car, our house, perhaps other things that we own. But have you ever thought there will be no insurance like that in heaven? We'll not need to insure anything physical along that line because you see we'll be in the spiritual abode, but what's more, nothing that defiles is there. There will be no damaging tornadoes. There will be no thieves. There will be no hurricanes that wreak havoc. Everything will be pristine and permanent. Doesn't that excite us? Number three, another thing that will not take place in heaven. Have you ever been in a hurry? 
I'm sure that most of us in the current situation in which we live understand well. We rush from this activity to that. We're on the clock, if you please, each day and furthermore through the characteristics of the week. There are deadlines to be met. There are places to, in fact, we must go and individuals that are expecting us. How often are we in a hurry? Have you ever thought about the fact when it comes to heaven, there will be no hurrying? There will be no rushing to get from one location to another. There will be no particular matter in which we'll find ourselves in need to hurry. I would ask that you think about some of these verses with me. Perhaps it surrounds the concept of a clock. In Revelation 14, 13, the inspired writer put it like this. As he spoke about the finality of life here in contrast to existence there, he said, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that what? They may rest from their labors. Rest from their labors. Nothing about hurrying here, but they may rest from their labors. Their works do follow them. The kind of life they lived on earth, the faithfulness that they exhibited, that pattern will be representative of the kind of lovely existence that they'll enjoy to greater degree there. But not only that, in Genesis 1.14, in the first chapter of God's blessed book, on that fourth day of creation when the sun and the moon and the various celestial bodies were created, God gave the explanation. They were made for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Note the connection to time. This world is what's connected to time. That one is not. How often do we sing about the continuing and the everlasting existence that, affor- that affirms that place? Time is merely a way to measure a duration between something that starts and something that ends. But in heaven, there is no ending point. Isn't it interesting in that connection that sometimes we sing a song and I think we know what the author has meant. The sixth verse of that song, Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, we know what he means. The fact is there's no year there. There's no second, no minute, no hour, no day, no week, no month, nothing like that because there's no time duration to mark. It is one ceaseless, ongoing existence in happiness, in bliss, in all the joy that surrounds it. You might give thought to one of the next verses on that slide, and it's a statement Jesus made in Matthew 25, 46. As He closed that description of the judgment, He pointed out that there would be some who would be cast into everlasting punishment, but others into eternal life. The reason that's so significant in this context is this. It's the same word in Greek. Our translators chose to identify one of them with the word everlasting in terms of punishment, but the other one with the word eternal, may I say, heaven is going to last as long as hell will. Both will never end. But you see, in that beautiful place called heaven, What a lasting description is presented in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. There Peter spoke about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then He described it like this. Unto a place undefiled that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. There's where it is. It's heaven. But it's undefiled and it never fades. That's difficult for you and I to fully imagine, I understand. We're accustomed in this life to things that fade, to things that tarnish with the passing of time. But that will not be the case there. Sometimes we sing a song about the land of fadeless day. See where the adjective appears, fadeless. And yet Peter had said, nothing fades there. The glorious and blessedness of that beautiful place. One more thing, hurrying that we often do here, it will not take place there. What about number four? What else is something that will not take place there? In Revelation 21.4, a moment ago it was read for our consideration. Brother James directed our attention to this verse, and if I may read it again... These words are so very encouraging. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The Word of God makes a distinction between former things and these things that are present there. And again, I chose that as a part of the title, Things Not Done in Heaven. Number four, injury and sickness. So much attention, of course, by you and by me is directed toward preventative measures in regard to sickness. We visit a dentist, we go to an eye doctor, we see a nurse, we go to a clinic, we get shots for various things, all to keep sickness at bay. Not only that. There are occasions, of course, when we do become injured and we seek the services of a medical professional. We might have to buy Band-Aids. Did you ever think there's no Band-Aids in heaven? No need for slings. No need for other matters directly attendant to the preservation of the body. There won't be any of that. Let's look at some verses. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where even in the most innocent of circumstances and certainly unpremeditated, you injure yourself? Maybe you twist an ankle. Maybe you get a hit in perhaps some kind of athletic activity. Maybe otherwise you find yourself in position that your physical body is suffering under the load of pain. Well, you'll notice on the slide... In heaven, as you and I have just read, there is no pain. Perhaps that thought has often been thrilling. To you and I, we look forward to, and in fact, we yearn for a place where there's none of this. Have you ever had a bad headache? Maybe even a migraine? To those of us that have, don't you look forward to a place where there's none of that? Don't you look forward to a place where there's no need for aspirin, no need for any severe and serious pain relief like may come when you go to the hospital and they have to give you some oxycodone or something like that. There's no need for it. Look furthermore 
at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. In many ways, that chapter has much to say about the context of this which is not in heaven. Let's reflect upon the first few verses of that chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writing, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, did you know this tabernacle is our physical body, were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. Paul says in this tabernacle, all of us from time to time suffer beneath the burden of groaning. Things hurt. Things are painful. Things are so very disturbing on occasion. But he reads and says, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. While we tabernacle in this flesh, our eyes are riveted on a place where there's none of this groaning. Verse 3 if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We look for a place where there's none of this groaning due to sickness, pain, and injury. You may notice one last verse taken from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and following, Paul described that when the time of the Lord's second coming occurs, those that are alive will be changed in an instant. In the twinkling of an eye, the text says, and they'll put on incorruption, they'll put on immortality, they'll put on a kind of existence that is so different in many ways from this one. To this point, we've looked at four things that are not done in heaven. Let me add a fifth one. You've already noticed it at the bottom of the slide, but maybe it's time to give it more attention. It's again quite likely the case that rarely a day passes in our journeys along the roadways of our country, but what we see a cemetery. Now, we may not give it much thought, but we see it's there. These headstones, these grave markers, and no doubt many times we have visited them ourselves right after a funeral to put into the bosom of earth someone whom we loved or at least a close neighbor or friend. One more thing that you'll never do in heaven is see a cemetery. There isn't any such thing there. You'll notice on that slide, as frequently as the Bible makes note of it, it's in perfect harmony with our own observation, isn't it? We understand so well that our life in this flesh is not permanent. In 1 Kings 2, verse 3, didn't David exclaim, I go the way of all the earth. Well, he was talking about his death. Let's add to that this one. In 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, that wise woman of Tekoa pointed out to King David, We are as water spilt on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. One of the most interesting comparisons in all the Word of God, don't you think? To liken our physical life to water spilt on the ground. You can't gather it back up. Though try you might, some of it will be absorbed into the soil. You can't gather it back again. And that's much like our life. It's going to pass one way from this life into the life beyond. Maybe one more thing. In Hebrews 9.27, that famous reflection wherein the Hebrew writer said, As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. That certain appointment, and yet, as oft as we see cemeteries here, 
Look at the text of verse 4 in Revelation 21. We read it earlier, but I'm going to invite you to notice it again with a bit of emphasis. And in that context, we'll look at another verse in chapter 22. Revelation 21, verse number 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. This which has been the common lot of human life upon this earth, namely death, it will not be present there. As we learned earlier in the lesson today, this ongoing, continuous, unending existence, well again, that's the very concept of life, and there is no death. But it is in that connection, look over to chapter 22, the last chapter in the book of God. It's almost as if God wished to emphasize it one last time. Verse number 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servant shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign, how long? Forever and ever. No ending to their existence. Nothing that you and I would be able to identify as death. For that reason, one last thing, no cemeteries in heaven. Daniel had said something like that in Daniel 12 verse 2. And certainly Jesus highlighted the principle in John chapter 5. The Lord's famous words, of course, read like this. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. Notice life. But they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Jesus spoke of a resurrection to life. He didn't say anything about it terminating, ending, or in any way transitioning to something else. May I suggest, you and I may see many cemeteries here, but we'll see none there. Let's motivate to number six in our lesson. Something that you and I do regularly here, but which will never take place there. Face temptation. Do you and I ever face temptation here? Do you ever find yourself on a pinnacle of decision in which you know that there's a way that's wrong and a way that's right? And have you ever found yourself choosing the wrong way? To face temptation. Temptation is something that, of course, is an ongoing premise of life. In James 1.14 we read, starting in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But note what follows. Every man is tempted. There's not any of us exempted. Every one of us is tempted. And so we experience this here. But look at the next thought. God demands that in the face of that temptation that we choose wisely. Just because the devil is tempting us, we can't use as, a, as an excuse, the devil tempted me to do wrong and I chose it. God won't give us a pass just because of that. He didn't give Adam a pass. He didn't give Eve a pass. Though Eve said, the devil beguiled me. That didn't stop God from punishing her. He won't simply overlook our choices. And so it's true, we have to labor and we have to make sure to choose rightly. 
I would hope that only heightens our thought of heaven. There will be none of these difficult decisions there. There will be none of these situations that demand our earnest attention in that regard. In fact, people here upon earth frequently choose so badly. You and I have seen it. We know already what the end of that choice is going to be. You've seen it in the lives of people that you know. I've seen it in the lives of people that I know. You know they're making a a bad choice. And yet, in the years that follow, the consequences turn out just as badly as you knew they would. We can't make their decisions for them. And although here upon earth some choose so poorly, they choose to abandon faith and to abandon God. Look at the last thing on that slide. There will be no temptations there. That's so exciting. To contemplate ongoing, complete, and thorough connection to God. No separation due to sin. No separation due to the results of poorly made choices. Every person, every individual that's there will love being there and will serve God faithfully through the ceaseless ages of eternity. No temptation in heaven. Why don't we look at seven and end our lesson. I chose to put this one last, although we've already read it earlier today. In Revelation 21.4, the very first phrase was this one. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Today, you and I frequently cry. And it's not tears of joy many times. It's tears of heartache. It's tears due to pain. It's tears due to extreme despair and disappointment. It's tears over again, the poor choices that our loved ones have made and continue to make. Tears. And yet, something here is rather dramatically affirmed. It says, God shall wipe away all tears. There will be no crying for sadness in heaven. There will be no crying due to pain, no crying due to despair or disappointment, no crying due again to the poor choices of others. One thing that this seems to easily suggest is this. Many have wondered, if I know that my dear beloved ones are not in heaven, how can I not be sad? This much we can conclude. Apparently, based on that verse, God will bring us to an understanding such that even if our dear loved ones are not there, it will not cloud our disposition, and it will not bring us to tears and sadness. We will understand thoroughly that they were guilty of sin, and that they chose to remain in that state, and what they received was their just result. God will wipe away not most tears, not some tears, the text says, all of them. What an emphasis and what a motivation for us to live faithfully. In many ways, this had been prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah 25. It had there been pointed out, God wipes away tears. Don't you look forward to a place in which all of these seven things that we've learned today, though they take place here, they will not be there. Let's close our lesson then like this. Certainly it would seem that what we've learned today is a tremendous motivation to follow in the words of Psalm 119, verse 133. 
order my steps in thy word. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. If we want to go to a place like this, we need to allow that verse to rest in our heart. Let no dominion, let no iniquity have dominion over you. Whatever may be troubling your life, if it's a matter of sin, repent of it. Don't stay in it. Don't try to excuse it. Don't justify it. Jesus went to the cross to give you an avenue to be saved from it, not to stay in it. And all of us should thus love wonderfully and with almost unhesitating excitement to come before the Master. These seven things, and you can see them at the bottom of that slide, those are things that won't happen in heaven. If you'd like to go to that place and you've never become a Christian, there are some things you must do to put your name into the register list. Quite often, we're accustomed to a register list here on earth. We go to a certain place, and if your name isn't on the register, you're not allowed in. Sometimes that happens at restaurants. Sometimes it happens in other locations or places. There is a register list for heaven. And Revelation 20 verse 15 tells what it is. It's the Lamb's book of life. If your name isn't in the book, you will not be allowed entrance. Today, if your name isn't in the book, you need at once to believe in Jesus. That's required of you. You need to repent of your sins, confess His matchless name, and to be baptized. At that point, your name is put on the list. All that's required now, live faithfully till death. Be faithful day in and day out. It could be that there's one or more in this audience that though at one time a faithful Christian, today you're not. And so your name has been erased out of the book. Revelation 3 verses 1 to 5 talk about that eraser. Don't you want it put back in? If it's sins known of a public character, confess it before this audience today. As you do that with repentance in your heart, God has promised He'll forgive you and He'll put your name back in the book. If today we could be of help to anybody in either of these ways, it'd be our joy, our delight, and even the angels in heaven would be excited to rejoice if you would come while together we stand and while we sing.